Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast. The second week of the playoffs is in the books, and for the week of Monday, November 30th, I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And we're going to dive right into our game of the day. Lockman from 43 yards out on the left hash mark is where he'll kick it from. He has not made one over 40 this year. His longest is 38. This to win the game on the final play. Good snap, good hold. Kick is on the way. The kick is good. And Johns Hopkins has won the game on a 43-yard Alex Lockman field goal with no time on the clock, and they have advanced to round three of the Division Three playoffs with a 31-29 victory. That was a kick. That and he had that with a good 10 yards to spare. Wow. A clutch kick, a clutch drive after Thomas Moore looked like he had put together a clutch drive to score to lead at 29-28 with 51 seconds to go in the game. Alex Lockman comes down on the final play from 43 yards out. He knocks it through, and Johns Hopkins advances 31-29. And we're joined once again by Kevin Nias uh, for the second week in a row. This past week, he broadcast the Johns Hopkins-Thomas Moore game for D3Football.com with Richard Skinner. And uh, Kevin, uh, welcome back. Uh, as a, a Thomas Moore alum, obviously, I think we just get this out of the way first. Probably not pretty happy with uh, the way your alma mater performed Saturday. A uh, very, very tough loss, Pat. Uh, um, the, the Saints' uh, first half, Johns Hopkins really dominated, and it didn't look very good as they went into halftime and we had our fifth year uh, senior quarterback out of the game a freshman came in the last play of our drive going into the end zone i say our i say it should say thomas moore um threw an interception so things didn't look good at halftime but they battled back um just too many mistakes uh, throughout the game even in the third and fourth quarter when they did make their scoring uh, run on johns hopkins and you know, Johns Hopkins was the better team yesterday. It's, it's definitely tough to take, but uh, they lost to a team that played better than they did. Take us through, uh, you got kind of a, obviously the uh, the ending of the day, the game of the day, and, and pretty much the only competitive game in the second round of the playoffs, but you uh, ended up with uh, back-to-back two-minute drills basically to end up deciding that game. Very interesting the way that happened. Um, Tom, Thomas Moore got the ball um, with all their timeouts being exhausted already with a minute 51 left. Um, Trevor Stellman completed three passes for 16 yards. It got off to a slow start, and, and then he completed his last two to Jeff Brink, um, covering the final 66 yards. The first one was 43-yarder, and then the second one was a 23-yard touchdown pass. Um, then after that, you would assume, based on the stats on the season, that the Thomas Moore defense would be able to step up and hold them out of at least field goal range, and maybe um, 51 seconds isn't enough time, but Johns Hopkins had three timeouts left. They managed the game very well in the second half, and and they made the plays. Uh, Andrew Case was, was was huge on that drive. Thomas Moore is expecting the pass. Had their pass rushers ready to go, were rushing the passer, and, and Case hit them for a couple uh, big gains up the middle uh, to really help them out. And down to the uh, down to the final play, in which uh, a 43-yard field goal, the attempt for uh, for Lackman, and the the longest attempt of the season for him. Definitely, we had said on air yesterday that his his season high was 38, and we thought the target for the for the Johns Hopkins offense to get to was a 30-yard line for them to have a chance. Not seeing uh, the leg that the kicker had, uh, Lashman. Um, had, um, but they definitely, the, they completed a, uh, a nine-yard out. Uh, the play started with five seconds left. There was one second left on the clock when he got out of bounds, and then they brought out the kicker. Hey, Kevin, uh, Frank Rossi and I were, were keeping an eye on that game from afar, and we were broadcasting at Wesley, and our game was out of hand, and, and of course, the winner would, uh, would come to Wesley next week and play the game, so we were quite interested. Tell us uh, a little bit about a couple things. One, the um, the emotional roller coaster, not just for you, but for the crowd there at, at Thomas More. What it was like to go ahead uh, after you've been trailing the entire game uh, to go ahead with 51 seconds left, and then to watch Johns Hopkins uh, come down the field and uh, and kick that winning field goal. And also tell us a little bit about the situation there in the uh, in the final couple of seconds where there was a there was an offsides play 
by uh, by Thomas Moore, and then uh, the decision by Johns Hopkins to go for it, uh, to run a play with five seconds left, and uh, they picked up nine yards. And so a total there between the penalty and the nine-yard play of, uh, of 14 yards that made that a much more makeable field goal for the Blue Jays. Right. Um, well, first to start with the, the crowd, obviously um, you could see up on the hill, you could hear them below you. Um, they were uh, very uh, jubilant uh, with 51 seconds left when Thomas Moore went up by one. Um, they did go for two. Um, they had missed a, 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 a they had, had failed on a two-point conversion early in the fourth quarter. I think it was four or five seconds into the fourth quarter. Um, so they had to convert two to get it to a three-point game. They weren't able to do so. There was a little bit of uh, trepidation, I think, uh, once they didn't get the two-point conversion there with uh, 51 seconds left. And so then uh, that led down to the last couple plays, as you talked about. Um, Johns Hopkins got down the field. They made some plays. Um, there was a uh, five-yard penalty, as you said, for outside to Probably could have gone either way. It did look like Thomas Moore had jumped. Um, there was a receiver on the left side of the formation that that also jumped at the same time. So can't really complain about that too much. It definitely, you know, uh, 14 yards um, there between the penalty and then the nine-yard completion definitely helped. But uh, the, the kicker had a very, very strong leg, and he cleared that the, the crossbar with 10, 12, maybe 15 yards to spare. So um, nothing really to argue with there. Um, the, the play, um, the receiver just made a great play to get out of bounds. He knew where he was on the field, he ran a great route. It was perfect for the defense that Thomas Moore had called. Uh, the cornerback uh, was playing at about 12 yards, and so it was, um, it was a perfect play call. Kevin, tell us about uh, Johns Hopkins as a team. What uh, what should people be looking for uh, as they go up against Wesley in the quarterfinals coming up this Saturday? Well, I think that when you look at Johns Hopkins, they are a very, very physical team. Um, they don't get rattled very easily. Um, they have a very good uh, running back. He's 6'1", 225, which is big for this level. Um, <coughs> that He has some nimble feet. He made a lot of really good plays. Um, to get back to the line of scrimmage and and uh, get a little bit of positive yardage. Thomas Moore had him in the backfield um, a few times. And I was looking at it before the game. I was interested in his stats, and I think he had only lost like seven or ten yards on the year. Um, so he's always falling forward and, and with that nimble feet. He's, he's a very good running back. Now going to their passing game, um, one of their interceptions was thrown by – their receiver it was Dan Crowley, and and I, from what I'm hearing um, up there and talking to the Johns Hopkins people is they they do that a little bit. They have some trick plays in there. Um, the quarterback Tyler Porco isn't as accurate, or not Tyler Porco. He's the uh, running quarterback that comes in. So they have a running quarterback that they use kind of a wildcat formation, um, and then they have Hewlett Tomlin, who who is their starter. He's a sophomore. From Tennessee. He's not as accurate as you'd like, um, and I think they probably need to tighten that up a little bit. Uh, a lot of his throws were high. Um, there was definitely a few balls that could have been intercepted. He was intercepted three times yesterday. Um, with Wesley coming into this game, um, they've intercepted 21 balls this year. And I think it's definitely they definitely need to protect the ball, but they're a very physical team, and if they get any kind of lead in the second half, they're going to pound on Wesley with Andrew Case, and, and they have the linemen on, on both sides of the ball to do that, to control the line of scrimmage. They were very impressive yesterday. Kevin, uh, Wesley is going to you know, be strong and physical up front. The defensive line is one of the strengths of their team. How is uh, Johns Hopkins likely to react to that, and how, how, how would you know maybe – let, let's just say Wesley has one of the top five defensive lines in Division Three. How would that compare to what they saw on Saturday? Well, what they saw on Saturday, what I saw out of Johns Hopkins on Saturday was a, a team that was very well coached, had very good technique. Um, I don't think they'll be intimidated. Um, the, you know, definitely, uh, I believe Thomas Moore is a, is a top ten defense. Their defensive line isn't as big as Wesley's going to be. So it's a little bit different equation. Uh, Thomas Moore has a 200-pound nose tackle who is a, a speedy guy. 
but other than that, looking across the board, they're going to see more size. So, But I think with their attitude and with their coaching, uh, the technique that, you know, they – they could have some success in, in keeping those guys out of the uh, out of the backfield. They they blocked very well, and if they if they uh, give give Tomlin some time, um, if he's able to throw accurately, there's a lot of ifs in there. Um, but they're definitely a team that's that's physical, um, and they won't be intimidated uh, by a by a bigger uh, defensive line from Wesley. So Kevin. Uh what what's it look like for Thomas Moore next year? I know obviously uh, Stellman's a senior quarterback. What's the rest of the team looking like for 2010? Stellman's a senior quarterback. They're losing eight seniors. Um, two of the linebackers, Brandon Coors and and uh, Steinmetz. Steinmetz being a two-time All-American, that loss will hurt. Um, what they did this year was Matt Clark went over. He was the All-Pack linebacker. Uh, Matt Clark went over to uh, the H-back position on offense. Um, I would assume if they don't have anybody else to step up that he would come back over to the defensive side. Um, they were very young um, on the defensive side of the ball. They, they played four freshmen at the end of the year. Got, and uh, So the, they're pretty young, but they lose a couple guys defensively in key positions. Um, their entire defensive line comes back um, and their backups offensively. Uh, you lose Trevor Stellman, a fifth-year senior quarterback. Obviously, that's gonna that's gonna hurt a little bit. But um, they have Robert Coos, who's a uh, freshman from Newport Central Catholic, very athletic, six-two, two hundred ten-pound freshman. Um, and that, so they'll need him to step up next year. And then also at, at running back, they lose uh, Cordero Collier. Um, he's a uh, four-year senior. Was pretty much the uh, along with. Uh, Delman was the heart and soul of the offense, and but they do have a couple running backs. Uh, they brought in as freshmen this year, uh, Lyman Carter, a freshman from Akron Hoban. He was All-State in high school his senior year up there. Uh, he got some playing time this year. Uh, Luis Perez, a freshman uh, tailback from Cincinnati, he got a lot of playing time this year. And then also they'll still have Kendall Owens coming back for his junior year, uh, more of a speedster type. Uh, probably needs to bulk up a little bit to get to uh, Collier's level, but uh, definitely some talent there, and they're really, uh, really recruiting the Cincinnati area very well. All right, Kevin, uh, thanks for your uh, work this past two weeks, and uh, we'll catch up with you again. Thanks for having me, Keith. It was, uh, you know, I, I think we mentioned it briefly, but this is the the highlight of the day Saturday, in, in which basically had. Uh, a couple games where we thought had some promise and, you know, just one game really in the grand scheme of things. Johns Hopkins beating Thomas Moore 31-29 that uh, really lived up to uh, the kind of the kind of playoff competition. Yeah, Pat, if, if you look at the round in its entirety, the eight games, the, uh, the average winning score was uh, 41, a little over 41 points, and the average losing score was uh, 13.3, about 13.4 actually. So the, the margin of victory is nearly 28 points in the second round. Um, four teams held below 10 points. Nobody shut out, uh, and, and only two teams actually reaching uh, 21 points or higher, Thomas Moore being the, the only one, and the only game that was within 17 points in the second round was that Hopkins Thomas Moore game. The rest of them, uh, some of them started out pretty competitively. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of Illinois Wesleyan giving Whitewater a good run in the first half. You know, uh, Montclair State had had 28 14 um, at Mount Union. You know, you don't see teams put up a couple touchdowns early, really, very often against Mount Union, and, and that game turned out to be 62 14. Um, but the, but just just. The games that had a chance to be really good games uh, didn't didn't really live up to the billing, and and the one I'm thinking of mostly, I guess, is Linfield and and Mary Harden Baylor, and you know for the Crusaders they turned it over seven times. That it makes it real tough to be competitive. Yeah, this is a game, Keith. That was uh, it was fourteen thirteen at the half. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor was leading. They jumped out to a fourteen three lead pretty early, and you know by the time I got back to uh, to my computer to watch it. Uh, after coming back from the St. Thomas game, uh, this game was over. Uh, I was listening to it in the car. Uh, don't ask. I had to have my wife uh, set up the phone next to the computer for that to happen. But, um, you know, <clears throat> just listening to uh, Linfield pick up turnover after turnover, returning them for scores. Three 
three turnovers of, of those seven returned four touchdowns and, and you know Mary Harden Baylor uh, you know we saw in 2004 how that how, how a program with that kind of offense could come back in a fourth quarter deficit but you're you're not going to come back from uh, 32 points down and 21 points down as they were at various points in the game. Pat, yeah, as you mentioned, 14-13 at the half, 40-14 to at the end of the third quarter. Uh, I think Linfield probably considers this potentially one of the, the legendary third quarters or legendary quarters, I guess, in uh, in program history, especially depending on you know where they go from here. If, if this is a team that ends up in the Stag Bowl or ends up winning the Stag Bowl, certainly that will be sort of a uh, keystone moment for them. Playing against one of the top three programs in the country the past couple years in, uh, in Mary Harden-Baylor, but also a team that, that struggled a little bit with its youth um, on offense, I think, and, uh, and struggled with some injuries in the past couple seasons and hasn't quite been up to the level that it was uh, in 07, I guess, and uh, in 06. No, and on the, uh, you know, on, the, on the Linfield side, this was just a, <clears throat> it was just a thumping. And here's the thing. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor actually had more total offense, 325 yards to 318. You know that's because total offense doesn't re- include you know the 141 yards in fumble returns or the 79 yards in in, in interception returns. It was just a uh, it was just a, a, a domination uh, on the defensive side. And I think one of the other uh, telling stats for Mary Harden Baylor is for a team that likes to really control the ball and control the clock, they they did neither. They uh, they had the ball for just 27 minutes and 40 seconds, just 4:57 in the fourth quarter as the game was uh, started was was out of hand and then and then getting getting uh, embarrassing. Yeah, and and that's not how a, a proud program like that wants to end its season, but it, it happens in the playoffs to to plenty of good programs. You know that they just have a day where they either they don't have it, they don't put their best game up, uh, they run into a team that that's on a roll. You know you can characterize Saturday as probably a combination of some of those things for uh, for Mary Hart and Baylor and and you know we were asked that question at Wesley whether Wesley was just that good or whether Mississippi College was having a bad day and and obviously the 43 to 9 final you know certainly favored Wesley doing a lot of things right and and a lot of the people that have been watching Wesley over the course of of several seasons said hey that was one of the the best games they played but also some of it was, was Mississippi College not playing that well. And, and I think if you look across the board at some of these second-round games, probably most of the margins of victory are, are going to be a case of, of those things where it's they ran into a team that played a really great game on, on Saturday, and then they didn't put their best game forward, and sometimes these games get out of hand quickly. Yeah, you know, I, I think turning the ball over is one of the big, uh, one of the big themes here, too. I, Mary Harden-Baylor turns it over seven times. Um, you know, co uh, took advantage of a, a bunch of, of of St. John's turnovers in the first week of the playoffs, and then you know turned the ball over itself several times in the loss to St. Thomas. Um, you know St. Thomas defeats Coe thirty-four to seven, and uh, St. Thomas on the other hand is a team that hasn't uh, turned the ball over once in the postseason. And here's what uh, Coach Glenn Caruso had to say about that. You know, this was a team that uh, fed off of turnovers. Co coming in, they were plus 22 on the year, which ranks them in the top 10, which is exceptional. And you can say whatever you want, opportunistic, but I mean, they're a very good, uh, they're a very good team at getting the ball. And obviously, ball security is part of our game. If we don't turn the ball over, we win 92% of our games, and I like those odds. Um, so, you know, this was a great example of what can happen for St. Thomas, and now for Linfield, uh, who, who face each other uh, in McMinnville, Oregon, on Saturday, December 5th, the three o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific time. Uh, you know, this is a uh, this is that'll be an interesting challenge uh, for for St. Thomas. They've taken care of the ball very well, obviously, in the past two weeks. And for for Linfield, uh, they've they they took a extreme advantage of of every mistake, seemingly that Mary Harden Baylor made. And that's what you you know you have to do in the playoffs, especially when you match yourself up against a a, a physically not imposing, but a team that, you know, is similar to you physically. Uh, you know, a, lo- a lot of these teams that are deep in the playoffs, this far in the playoffs, have, have been used to winning big all season. You know, and when they get in trouble, they rely on their, their, their they just have a better talent level or they're, they're a deeper team or, you know, they have a bigger, stronger offensive line. They, there's something that they can go to and rely on to, to help them win these games against teams that aren't as talented. When you get at this point in the season, you really have to play a sharp game because a lot of the teams, you know, you're lined up against physically match up with you well. And, and that was the case, again, you know, with the game I saw yesterday on, on Saturday. Wesley and Mississippi College, you know, if you just line them up next to each other, you'd say physically 
for the most part, these guys match up pretty well. And uh, and the team that, that plays a sharper game is the team that, um, you know, that ends up pulling it out. And, you know, in Wesley's case, again, it was, uh, you know, no no interception thrown thrown by Shane McSweeney. They were 7 of 8 on third down in the first in the first half. They didn't punt until right before the third quarter started. And, and you know, those are signs of, of a dominating game, but those are also signs of, uh, of a clean game. And, and, again, as we're just looking around the country for teams that didn't play well, Montclair State had eight turnovers. You know, Mary Harden Baylor seven turnovers. Cole, you mentioned the turnovers uh, against St. Thomas, and then you mentioned that St. Thomas hasn't turned it over the entire playoffs. You know, those are the things that make a difference when teams, you know, match up well with each other physically. Keith, you uh, subjected yourself to a second blowout on Saturday, already knowing uh, the uh, the Mount Union Montclair State result. Even more than you know, perhaps you and I knew it before the game took place. You watched it on tape delay on Saturday night, uh, at Mount Union defeating Montclair State sixty-two to fourteen. What um, what was your take on the the Purple Raiders? Well, it, it's interesting because it doesn't seem like Mount Union's most talented team, but as for what that means for everyone else, you know that this this postseason doesn't mean you know they won't win the national championship. So that's a hard, it's a hard way to to evaluate. A, uh, a team and a program. You know, we've seen Mount Union some really great teams over the past ten years. When you go back to those teams with, uh, with you know Chuck Moore and Dan Pugh, and then the whole Nate Kamick and Greg McKaylee, that whole run, and Pierre Garcon. You know, this Mount Union team has one really really special player. I think in in Cecil Shorts on offense, and they used him in the Wildcat formation against uh, Montclair State to run for three touchdowns. Um, they lost their their big star running back Scott Panchik lost him early in the game to an injury and uh, actually tried to follow up with them and they may be giving us the Belichick this week in terms of uh, not being necess- not being any more direct than they have to about about Panchik's injury. Sounds like there's a chance he'll play next week. Uh, looked like maybe an ankle or something like that um, during during that game and and I think. You know, defensively, one thing that that you notice when you watch Mount Union after watching a, a, a Division three game previously the same day, Mount Union is so fast to the ball on defense that their pursuit is great. They uh, they get off the line really quickly. You know, offensively, uh, sort of the same thing. They're just very sharp, very crisp. And there's a difference if if you watch one team or one, or one group of teams and then you turn around and watch a Mount Union game, you should be able to notice the difference with the naked eye. They're just very sharp, very crisp. You know, physically, I don't know if it's their most imposing team. If I had to to make a prediction, I, I would say they're they're beatable. Even after that performance against uh, Montclair State uh, yesterday where they, they totally turned it on in, in the second half after a 28-14 start, uh, final was 62-14. I would actually say they're, they're beatable, but you know, beatable Mount Union team is sort of almost an oxymoron. It's so close to to uh, to never happening that it's hard for us to digest it. Right. The concept is is not as much beatable, but beatable by whom? And and I think that you know, as usual, there there there's one team in the country that you can definitely say that about. I don't know if you could say that about Linfield. I don't know if you can say that about Wesley. But uh, since you saw Wesley on Saturday. Uh, you know, right before seeing Mount Union on tape, why don't you uh, give us your uh, kind of preliminary breakdown if if those two teams were to advance to meet in the semifinals? Well, look, it, it's certainly a possibility because you're sending uh, next week. We're sending Albright to Mount Union, and and Albright is a team that you know was not ranked in the top 25 at the end of the season, was receiving votes, but uh, 17 votes, but but wasn't even really close to being in the top 25, and. Um, Johns Hopkins wasn't receiving any votes, unranked team going to number three, Wesley. So you have two unranked teams, sort of the surprise stories of the playoffs, I think, when we talk about Albright and Johns Hopkins going to number one, Mountain Union, and number three, Wesley, uh, next Saturday. And if Mountain Union and Wesley were to play, I think if Wesley plays as well as they did on Saturday against Mississippi College, they could beat Mountain Union. And the, the reason I think that is this. That defensive line is going to be hard to match up with. And when you when you get further down the line in the, in these postseasons, I think that's what sort of separates Mount Union and and Whitewater from a lot of the teams that they play is their their offensive line and their defensive lines. Teams don't have that kind of combination of size and speed, and, and really those guys are sharp technique wise. You don't really see Mount Union quarterbacks have to fight off a lot of pressure 
Those guys sit back there, scan the field, and make their throws. And that's a credit to their offensive line. And, and that also, I'm sure, is a credit to, to their, their offensive style. But if you look, it really doesn't matter who's playing quarterback for Mount Union. They're always completing about 70% of their passes, very rarely sacked, and throw very few interceptions. I think Kurt Rocco's thrown six in 12 games. So, you know, if they get in a situation where they're facing that defensive line from Wesley, which is really the strength of that Wesley team, um, you know, Mike Ward, a big 300-pound defensive tackle in there, but a guy who's agile enough to, to leap up and bat down passes. Uh, Chris Mays, big six foot three, 235 defensive end coming off the corner. He's a lot of trouble. Carlos James, you know, they, they bring in a wave of guys that don't even start that can sort of help wear down an offensive line over the course of a game. I think that's really the key, how Wesley's defensive line would match up potentially with Mount Union's offensive line. Could they get pressure on, uh, on Kurt Rocco and make it tough for him? You know, Keith, uh, in, in, in almost every situation, Mount Union's opponent, you know, let's, let's be frank here, Mount Union's opponent is going to get outcoached. You know what I mean? Uh, Larry Karras is going to outcoach and his staff are going to outcoach almost everybody in Division Three. Um, and when you think about that and then, you know, I think there's a, there's a poise factor as well for teams who have to face Mount Union in alliance especially. Uh, I, I think that those are two, two kind of facets of, of a matchup that are, are, are real difficult to quantify. It's one thing. It's sort of easy, I guess, to say. You know, I, I talked to Coach Giancola, the Montclair State coach, after the first round game, and he said, you know, we're going to go out there and uh, we're not going to be intimidated. And he wasn't saying that I predict we're going to win this game, but he's saying our guys are going to give their best effort. They're not afraid of Mount Union. And a lot of teams say that, but but here's the thing. You may not fear them, but when when you go down 14-0, 21-0, it's human nature for doubt to creep in. And uh, a lot of teams, you know, they need, to, they need to hang close early or they need to put up a good fight early against Mount Union. You know, get out of that first quarter within seven points. You know, the, the close games we've seen or the times we've seen Mount Union be beat, the longer that, that – the, the non-Mount Union team stays in the game, you know, the, the better it is for, uh, for, for that team's confidence. And uh, for anyone that has to go to Alliance and play, you know, it's not a, an imposing place to play in the sense that it's built so that the fans are on top of you or anything like that. You know, there's a track between the field, and, and they're not, as a crowd, you know, they're, they're boisterous, but they're not um, intimidating in the sense that when you run out of the tunnel, you know, they're screaming obscenities at you or anything like that. It's not really that sort of place to play. I think it's just the history of it and people getting there and knowing, you know, that this team never loses. A lot of people don't get a chance to actually watch Mount Union, and so it's sort of built up in their head as this this uh, program where they recruit guys that are better and they're, and they're, they're you know, super in some way and really they're they're sort of working with a lot of the the same things that everyone else is working with but they've done it so well over the course of so many years that you know 10 championships tends to recruit itself larry karras you know has been in the program i think 24 years so he knows ohio well he's recruiting you know getting maybe as many as 200 kids in the program at the beginning of the year that creates competition within the program and then as you mentioned pat he's he's a he's a great uh game plan coach and he's a great in-game coach in the sense that, and I actually said this to Frank Rossi while we were coaching yesterday, I mean, while we were broadcasting yesterday, when we saw the 28-14 score, Montclair State, I said that the the key in a Mount Union game is the third quarter because Larry Karras and those guys, the way they make adjustments at halftime, if the game is any kind of close in the first half, they usually break it open in the third quarter, and and that's what happened on Saturday to Montclair State. You know, they just just didn't have any response for, uh, for what happened when Mount Union started to get going. Yeah, and just to kind of detail how that went down, the third quarter, uh, Montclair State starts with the ball, six plays, interception. Uh, Next drive, two plays, interception. Uh, The next drive after that, still in the third quarter, fumble on the first snap from scrimmage. Uh, The the possession after that, still in the third quarter, uh, Montclair State goes three and out and punts with minus 24 yards. So they they managed to punt, but they got dominated there as well. And then the the three possessions after that, interception, interception, interception. And it went from 28 to 14 uh, early in the second quarter when uh, Montclair State went uh, uh, back-to-back drives for a touchdown. And uh, they followed that drive with their first interception as well and you can kind of see just where the where the wheels fall off after that not only did they not score after that you know they they only got to they only punted three times and one of them was a you know a a relief to punt after losing 24 yards on offense and part of it was Montclair State you know uh, Tom Fisher didn't play 
his uh, his best game. You know, he was he threw a couple of nice balls early, uh, threw a deep post that, that into double coverage for that led to uh, to Montclair State's first touchdown, and it was a well thrown ball. But some of those interceptions were poorly thrown, balls tipped up. I know I, c- I can think of one uh, that that Drew McLean picked off that that had been tipped. You know, it was overthrown and it was tipped up, and then McLean ran under it. And uh, you know, he's a, McLean is sort of a guy who's always around the, the ball. It seems like you know, going back to some of the stag bowls that that we've seen him play in. Uh, and, and I think next week when Albright goes out there, they're going to get a, a a better look. I guess that quarterback Tanner Kelly, uh, I'm I'm going to guess is is going to is, is more sharp as a passer than uh, than Tom Fisher was on Saturday. And uh, you know, for Albright, you know that's the key. You know, to 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 do what they do. You know, they sort of the the phrase is dance with who brung you. I guess you know uh, they won't be able to dance with with. One of the guys who helped bring him, in, and that's uh, Patrick Subers, who also had played quarterback uh, when when Kelly had been banged up for Albright in recent weeks, and uh, he he broke his leg against DelVal, and uh, so it's going to be Tanner Kelly out there at Mount Union, but he's going to have to be sharp and uh, and and not throw the ball you know into trouble spots and, and stuff like that, and I think. Mount Union's pretty strong on the defensive line. Those guys are quick off the ball. Uh, Joseph Millings and, and those guys are 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 going to get pressure on Tanner Kelly. But if he's if he's sharper than than Montclair State's quarterback Tom Fisher was on Saturday, you know Albright I guess has a chance to put up some points. If I'm picking a game out of the recent past uh, in the playoffs to compare this one to, uh, I'm thinking about uh, the first round of 2007 when uh, Mount Union uh, defeated Ithaca 42 to 18. Uh, it was, um, you know, it was, a, again, another game that was close early. Um, like Ithaca, Albright's going to come in with an experienced quarterback uh, and, and maybe keep the game close for a little while. But, you know, again, at, at the end, it's still playing Mount Union. Yeah, I mean, those Mount Union, they just don't make a lot of mistakes. And, and you you know, you you almost have to, it, it, you almost have to worry about, first of all, not, not having your team make mistakes because because they're so quick to the ball, they're so quick on the defensive line, and uh, they put a lot of pressure on you, your offense, to make mistakes. And then, you know, you, you turn it around, and they put a lot of pressure on you defensively because of some of the talent they have uh, on offense. And, uh, you know, I, I think the guy whose who's talent is dynamic, who's going to give teams a lot of trouble, again, is uh, is short, so we mentioned earlier. And, you know, now that they've thrown the, the Wildcat out there, that's just one more thing Albright will have to prepare for defensively uh, this week. You know, even if Albright is able to score a little bit with Mountain Union in the first half, maybe through the third quarter, you know, they're also going to have to figure out how to stop Mountain Union. And, uh, you know, that is uh, is easier said than done, even if uh, even if Panchik doesn't play. To, to look back at uh, what Albright did on Saturday, coming back to, uh, you know, I mean, pretty much humiliate Delaware Valley the way Delaware Valley humiliated Albright near the end of the regular season is a, uh, you know, to project that this is probably, that's their last win of the season. I think that's a pretty good uh, good way to hang your hat. Hey, I mean, let's not overlook what, what Albright has done in, in this postseason. It, really, one of the great stories, I think, along with John, Johns Hopkins, you know, maybe you can toss Wittenberg in there, but they're, they're sort of following seed. Maybe you could toss St. Thomas in there. But I think Albright and, and Johns Hopkins are the two real stories of this uh, this postseason. The thing that Albright did that's amazing, Pat, you mentioned, not only to go on the road and win in the first round at Alfred, then they go on a road on the road in the second round to Delaware Valley against a team they played earlier in the season, really just uh, about three weeks ago, in uh, I guess week nine it was of the regular season, week nine, week ten, and uh, twenty nine point loss to Delval, forty five sixteen, knocked them out of the, uh, the the MAC championship race, and then the turnaround and win in the second round of the playoffs by twenty four points, twenty seven to three. That's a fifty three point swing, and that says a lot about uh, about John. Marska and the uh, and the coaching staff uh, for the Lions because you know they they must have taken that tape from the first Delaware Valley game or the the video we have to call it now. Um, I did say film a couple times on the air yesterday on on Saturday, Pat, and I know I know every time I say film it makes me think video because uh, that's one of your pet peeves. Albright, um, you know, I must have took a look at the video from the uh, from the first Del Delval game and uh, gotten a lot out of it and, and changed their scheme up to the point where you know it, it was a much much different game on Saturday. A 53 point swing again, 29 point loss and a 24 point victory is very impressive. So don't don't let us when we talk about the imposing task that lay ahead for Albright in, in going to Mount Union. 
don't confuse that with 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 you and I not appreciating what they've done to to date. No, uh, Albright and uh, Johns Hopkins. I think even more impressive than the the two teams that that won two road games last year. I'm thinking of uh, Wheaton winning at Trine and then at Wabash, and Warburg winning at uh, Stevens Point and then winning at Monmouth. Uh, I, I think Warburg's pretty comparable because they knocked off a pretty big uh, a, a pretty big name opponent there in that first round. But um, you know, Johns Hopkins goes on the road uh, as you mentioned without a vote um, and and knocks off two top twenty teams and, and Albright. Uh, you know. Beats a team that they've lost to already this season. Uh, beat Alfred on the road. Um, you know those are, are pretty impressive, um, are, are, are pretty impressive performances. And, and I think to to kind of dive back to something that uh, flicked in and out of my head earlier while we were talking about Johns Hopkins. If we were kind of to rank Johns Hopkins now, uh, without looking at the rest of my ballot, I'd probably be finding a spot for them somewhere in the 16 or 15 range. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to put them ahead of um, ahead of Hampton Sydney. You know, twenty three seven was pretty convincing victory, and then right, you know, a little bit ahead of Thomas More, right in that same area where Thomas More might land, because you know that game was one second, you know, one tick of the clock from from being a Thomas More victory. The fact that that Hopkins had the uh, had the guts to run a play with five seconds left, run a nine yard out. You know, I, I think to me, I, I always get nervous around six seconds. That's the last point where you can you can run a play confidently uh, that that you'll you'll be able to get the playoff and uh, either you know get out of bounds or get a timeout. And I do believe Hopkins had one timeout left at that point, so they could have run a play anywhere on the field. Um, but yeah, five seconds is really you know, that's nerve wracking. And the fact that they ran it, completed it, and then kicked the field goal to win. Uh, totally managed the, the second half and the last 51 seconds of that game perfectly. And, uh, you know, that says something about, about uh, Coach Margraf and, and the coaching staff uh, at Hopkins, but it also says something about how well that team has been, been prepared all season. You know, I, I think Margraf in the, uh, in the post-game comments made a remark where he said the last thing they did on, on practice at practice on Thursday was, was run that, that field goal unit out there to, to kick in that situation. You know, that's good coaching. It just is, and, and that's what you like to see at this point in the playoffs, especially for the fans you know, who are listening to the podcast and, and who are sort of tired of the same old cast of characters. You know, Mountain Union and Whitewater, of course, still being alive. You know, you can maybe throw Wesley in that group. Um, Linfield's had success before. Linfield, the last, uh, one of the last teams to go to the Stag Bowl and win it uh, besides uh, Mountain Union and Whitewater. But then you have these other teams that that are in the group, and those are the real surprise stories. I think when you get down to the final eight, you know, Albright, Johns Hopkins, Wittenberg, St. Thomas, those are the teams that that are really, uh, you know, make this season special and and have had special seasons. We've kind of hit the left-hand side of our bracket pretty hard. I think we've talked about uh, those games pretty much in depth. We haven't talked about the quote-unquote north bracket or bracket three or the upper right-hand bracket, depending on whose bracket you're looking at. Um, Wisconsin Whitewater... uh, uh, a close game early against Illinois Wesleyan, and then um, you know, kind of similarly, I guess uh, it kind of snowballed into uh, Whitewater's favor. And, and Illinois Wesleyan, you know, it's it's one, it's one scoring drive was punctuated by a 42-yard touchdown pass. They got the big play to score there, and then that was it. Yeah, and Whitewater, you, you know, that's going to be a hard defense to score on. It has been all season, and uh, you know, the thing I take away from from this game in particular is that. Um, Whitewater, you know, the, the WIAC champion is not going to overwhelm the CCIW champion physically. You know, CCIW, we've seen, you know, enough of those teams play, Pat, where, where uh, you know, that's – they recruit the, the, the best kind of kids you're going to get physically in, uh, in Division Three. So, you know, when you, when you think about how, White, how uh, Illinois Wesleyan matched up with Whitewater on Saturday, you know, that probably contributed to it being a close game early on. But that's just how good Whitewater is, that over the course of 60 minutes, you know, they're going to figure out ways to impose their will on you, and, and they certainly did that on Saturday. Lavelle Coppage, 32 carries for 188 yards and two touchdowns. Antoine Anderson in relief, nine uh, carries for 53 yards. And, and Jeff Donovan, you know, had a, another uh, similarly strong Jeff Donovan game. We talked about um, what Kurt Rocco's done this season, and, and Donovan's pretty much done the the exact same thing, just uh, maybe even a little more out of the spotlight because he's been uh, he's he's not a new starter; he's a returning starter, and he was twenty one to twenty eight passing for two hundred and seventy one yards, no interceptions, and three touchdowns. Yeah, that's the key number: uh, no no interceptions, and it was only sacked once, and that and that's the just the fourth sack 
of a Whitewater quarterback this season. You put those two numbers together, the no interceptions and the, uh, and the, and the one sack against a, a, a physically imposing playoff team in, uh, in Illinois Wesleyan, and you put your offense you know, in, in a good position. Um, when I talk about Whitewater imposing its will on you, I mean, this even goes back to last season or, or the season before. When, when you watch that team, nobody does it as well in the interior line as Whitewater does. And, you know, they've, they've sort of always been a running team. They've always been, you know, like to, like to run some, some zone blocking, stretch plays, and that sort of thing going back to the Berezowitz days. But they've diversified their offense, you know, in the, in the past couple of years. And, and you saw that balance, I think, on Saturday. You know, again, you mentioned Donovan, the 271 yards passing, uh, the 188 yards from, from, from Coppage. You know, 507 yards of offense, but pretty well balanced between the two. And again, you know, the no interceptions and the one sack. I mean, that's a very clean football game that, uh, that Whitewater played on Saturday. And that's what I mean when I say they, they impose their will on you. They're, they're doing everything they want to do offensively. And, and we've barely talked about the the Whitewater receivers all year, Keith. Um, and, and I think probably because no one of them really stands out uh, above the other. We don't have uh, a Derek Stanley. There's no Jim Lazinski around this year. Uh, they're really balanced at the top. Aaron Roosh, 54 catches for 715 yards. Jordan Wells, 52 for 817. Adam Brandis, 45 for 773. If you've been uh, following and watching Whitewater play over the past couple of years on, on their previous uh, runs to the Stag Bowl. Those are very familiar names. Yeah, you know, Roosh is the uh, all-time reception leader now uh, for, for Whitewater at 180 catches for 2,472 yards in uh, in his career. And uh, you, you mentioned, you know, kind of being a, um, a cast of, of receivers who are not necessarily well-known, maybe not feared. Hey, that's fine. You can you can win like that. You can win with with. Tr- with trustworthy, dependable guys at wide receiver, guys who block on your running plays, you know, maybe who don't have who don't have amazing numbers. That's actually a sign of a of a really balanced offense. And if you look a- across at, at the at the teams that are left, you know, you'll find uh, a star receiver on Wesley and you'll find a star receiver on Mount Union. But you also find supporting cast receivers, guys that are that are just dependable, guys that that a defense has to respect. You know, you can you can double team Cecil Shorts or you can double team Ellis Kraut. But the other guys are going to hurt you, and you know that's what happened at Wesley on Saturday. I know that I know a defense that lines up against Linfield is going to have to respect all their receivers, and that's the case with with Whitewater. You may get so tied up in trying to stop Coppage in that running game, you know that 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 you, you don't pay enough attention to the uh, to the passing game, and that's just the type of balance that the Warhawks have. They can do either thing they can throw they can they can uh they can run and uh, that's what makes them so tough to stop and then we've barely mentioned the defense you know that that played really a great game against illinois wesleyan on saturday as well we haven't really talked about the defense yeah i mean trony shumpert is still uh the the kind of the leader of the secondary kyle Supanowski's kind of taken on the uh you know the the i don't want to say the starring role but the 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 lion's share of the work at, at the linebacker position. You know, they, it's a, again, a group that only graduated, uh, you know, basically one starter off of last year's team. These are uh, guys that experienced as well. There's one other thing about um, Whitewater, which, um, you know, I, I like for them above uh, a lot of the other teams in Division Three, And uh, I think that's the kicking game. Uh, Jeff Shebler, 10 of 11 on field goals this season. He kicked a 46-yarder on Saturday. That's as long, but he is uh, three for three from beyond 40. You know, this is a guy who, um, you know, Whitewater thought enough of to nominate him for the Gallardi Trophy, and a, a, a pos- an award which almost always goes to offensive guys, almost always goes to quarterbacks or running backs, has been won, I think, once by a defensive player and never by a, a guy who plays only special teams. Yeah, and you know, if ever there's a year where where a kicker could win it, this is this is it because, uh, and I feel the same way you know, about offensive line. Um, I, I think Westermeyer from Augustana is another another guy who's been nominated, but um, it's it's a it's a cast of characters where none of those guys have gone very deep in the playoffs. I think Shebler and uh, Mountain Union's Judd Lutz are the only two uh, of the ten Gallardi finalists still playing. Uh, Adam Schaefer, the Mississippi College quarterback, probably had a good chance at, at winning the trophy, but um, held 175 yards passing. 
uh, on Saturday against Wesley. You know, not a not a real great performance. Got they got dominated. Uh, Dan Whalen and Alex Tanney, a couple of the other quarterbacks with with big numbers and uh, and and been having nice careers. Those guys got knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. So yeah, you you look at Shebler as maybe a candidate for uh, for for winning the Gallardi Trophy, which would be certainly would be saying something. Um, you know about about the way, like you said, Whitewater respects this guy to, to put to put a kicker up. Uh, for, you know, for the most coveted trophy in Division Three, that, that certainly says a lot about him. And I think you know the next, at least next Saturday, possibly longer, uh, Shebler's going to be be a, a player to watch for uh, for Whitewater because remember he's a guy who missed a couple of crucial kicks in, in last season's Stag Bowl and has to be motivated to to get back there and uh, and, and deliver in the clutch. The other game uh, in the the north bracket is Trine against Wittenberg. We mentioned, of course, obviously, uh, Wittenberg advanced. They they beat Trine thirty four to seventeen. You know, seventeen points is kind of a lot for Wittenberg to give up based on uh, how they've performed this year. But uh, Trine put up fifty one the week before against Case Western Reserve and was held to seventeen this week. And, and Wittenberg's offense, uh, you know, really kind of shown on Saturday as well. Twenty points in the second quarter in route to the thirty four on the day. Well, you know, you talk about Wittenberg's defense giving up uh, 17 points, but uh, they only gave up seven in the first half, and that's when Wittenberg built that 27-7 lead and enabled them to be a, a lot more comfortable uh, in the second half in terms of the plays they called and, uh, and the way they managed that game. Wittenberg now has big, big challenge, you know, with that defense. As much as we've raved about that defense, pretty much, you know, going back to the maybe third or fourth podcast of the season, Pat, when we were talking about um, – you know what was it for real or or not for real? I forget the phrase that we used at the time, but we we said Wittenberg. You know they're putting up these numbers against not so great teams, but but you don't you don't see them allowing anybody to have any success offensively. We've raved really about that defense, and you're right, the offense stood out against trying on Saturday in, in helping to build up that lead. But now that you get to take that great defense and and put them up against Whitewater this coming Saturday, and and, and that could be really really a matchup to watch and could be a fun one. Trine three and out on three of its first four possessions. Actually, uh, you know, really um, four of its first five possessions, uh, not counting the one which uh, was just one play before the half. They converted just two of 11 third downs. Uh, they barely had the football. They had it for 21-12, uh, whereas uh, Wittenberg scored 34 on Trine, similar to the way Case scored 38 on them the week before. 12 of 18 on third down, dominated the time of possession. They had the ball for... I'm going to do this in my head now. It's 20 minutes and 44 seconds in the first half. Trying barely, you can't score if you don't have the ball in most cases. Yeah, and, and yeah, you put those 20 minutes in the first half uh, and almost 20 minutes in the second half. Total of, of, of 38-48 on the game. And uh, so controlled the ball, you know, did what they, they sort of imposed their will on uh, on trying and, and you know, you wonder when you look ahead to that game next week: Is Wittenberg going to want to do that against Whitewater, and they're going to, are they going to be able to do that to control the ball, keep keep the uh, Whitewater offense off the field? It's certainly a question worth asking as we take a look at that matchup coming coming up um, this week. You know, the the numbers besides that time of possession number, though, I don't think they're that amazing. And, and you know, I mean, it, it wasn't like they completely walked over trying. I guess you know they outgained them. 468 to 250, which is pretty convincing. But try and rush for three and a half yards per carry. Uh, you know they, they were they were decent. I think in in some of these other situations, and, you know they they didn't try and didn't turn the ball over and sort of give the game away. I mean Wittenberg, uh, they they earned it the hard way. But but I don't know how that stacks up necessarily next week. Yeah, I mean I look at Wittenberg. Uh, I look at them being efficient. 16 of 22 passing. Uh, just the one interception. That was the only turnover on the day. For the Tigers, uh, you know, uh, obviously against any top team, uh, protecting and taking care of the football is important. Uh, I don't think we need to say that again. You and I have said it three times already this podcast, and, and uh, St. Thomas coach Glenn Caruso said it once. So I think we've got that covered. But, you know, um, those are the kind of things that you need to do uh, getting to this point of the season and going up against a Whitewater or if you're uh, Albright and going up against Mount Union or even if you're Johns Hopkins going up against the top dog in Wesley and, and well, St. Thomas going up against Linfield. That pretty much covers it. Yeah, you're right. Those are the four games. And, and St. Thomas-Linfield, you know, even if you're just judging by our last top 25 poll, that's the only game, you know, St. Thomas was ranked 10th, Linfield 5th. That's the only game with, with two uh, top ten teams left in it. Wittenberg was twelve. Whitewater's two, and, and we talked about the the two teams in the in the east and south 
uh, being unranked, going to number one and number three. The matchups next week, I think, you know, definitely some clear favorites. You know, St. Thomas obviously wouldn't wouldn't be a favorite because they have to make that trip from Minnesota all the way out to Oregon. But um, that's that's maybe the game of the week. You know, we'll it'll be interesting to see, I guess, if Wittenberg can uh, can can hang in there against Whitewater. And I think the other two, you know, it would be certainly a shock to see Hopkins win at Wesley and uh, and Albright win at Mountain Union. You know, for St. Thomas, uh, the interesting thing this week was uh, Greg Morse back at quarterback, and Morse, uh, you know, got benched after the the St. John's game. And he uh, he he just in that game he looked rattled, and he looked rattled early. He was missing uh, wide open passes. He was you know hitting guys, but not hitting them in stride. So he was turning uh, you know swing passes that could have uh, been seven or eight yard gains, turning them into one yard gains or a couple yard losses, that sort of thing. On Saturday, he looked he looked great. He was uh, he was very efficient with the football. He was hitting his targets. He was 11 of 16 passing for 196 yards, no interceptions. Um, he's the uh, and and when you got a guy like uh, Ben Wartman in the backfield who can uh, put up 236 yards on 34 carries, and then on the other side you have a defense that's um, that's going to provide eight sacks, three interceptions, and, and six takeaways. Uh, you you end up not having to put a whole lot of pressure on your quarterback, and, and for a guy who's uh, a sophomore and, and just got his way back into the starting lineup because uh, Dakota Tracy was hurt, um, you know, that's a that's a pretty good luxury to have. And, and you know, the more I think about about that game at Linfield uh, on Saturday coming up here, you know, it's good preparation. I think that that Linfield had in playing uh, Mary Harden Baylor just a, a you know a tough. A team that's tough physically, a team that can run the ball. You know, it, it will give them sort of a uh, a good look for St. Thomas here. And I think by the by the same token, you know, St. Thomas has 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 uh, you know by playing St. John's during the season and and playing Monmouth in the first round, they've they've gotten a, a couple looks at uh, you know a, a team that probably should be phys- physically similar to Linfield, and then that's that's uh, St. John's, and then you know in, in Monmouth, a team that maybe will spread the field and throw the ball like Linfield. Has. So I think both of these teams are, are, are well tested and well prepared for each other here in the in the quarterfinal round. Keith and I, along with Ryan Tips, will do our triple take uh, predictions once again this week. You can find them on the Daily Dose on Friday. Stay tuned throughout the rest of the week for uh, more playoff features as we get you ready for the national quarterfinals. He's Keith McMillan, and I'm Pat Coleman, and that's the Around the Nation podcast for Week 13. <laughs>